I want you to think about how much life has changed in the last 10 years, professionally, technologically, politically, globally, in your relationships. Think about how much change you have experienced, how different life is. Well, for the last 10 consecutive years, Keeley Companies has been named a top workplace by St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Their most important assets are their people, also known as the Keelians, and are credited as the backbone of their business. You can learn more about the Keeley Company's dedication to their employees by visiting KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. And today we have for you an awesome conversation with a guy who not only his life story you're going to love, but I think you're going to really love the takeaways that he has to provide you in particular near the end. So stick around for that. Our guest today grew up in what he considered to be a very small town in India. And when you hear how he defines it, you're going to chuckle at that idea of a small town. It's a couple million people. As a child, he was deeply impacted by his father's love, as well as being surrounded by poverty. That idea of always seen such despair, such poverty, though, guided him to pursue the American dream. As a young man, he made his way to the United States. He graduated university. He worked in New York. He had the dream job. He had it all. And then he almost lost it all when on September 11th, you know where I'm going next, 2001, he narrowly escaped the collapsing World Trade Center towers. It was then that he recognized he had been so completely consumed in pursuing the American dream that he'd forgotten to pursue his own version of it, his own dream. He had to figure out again what really mattered to him and how to live it daily. Feeling unfulfilled, Kushal began a quest to find answers to life's biggest questions, exploring his doubts with spiritual spirituality, and then finding ultimately peace within it. You're going to hear today a humble, brilliant man share his life story and ultimately not only where he found meaning and understanding and acceptance in his, but in these difficult, challenging, disruptive days where you and I find ourselves living, where we can find peace in ours. Part of Kashal's story is around breath work. And it is this idea of being highly mindful, not only of your life, which I think too frequently we take for granted, but what about the gift of breath? That's going to move you deeply. It's going to be one of your key takeaways. So I suggest right now, my friends, that you buckle up, that you grab your favorite coffee, tea, water, whatever you might be sipping on right now, that you grab your favorite Live Inspired journal, and that you get ready to be re-inspired with the truth that the best of our days are in front of us. So without further ado, let me bring on my friend and soon to be yours. His name is Kushal Chosky. Kushal, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. 
Man, uh, sometimes I wish I hit record earlier so that our listeners could have had a little bit of the experience that you and I just shared a moment ago, talking about life and the journey and what we're going to be chatting about on the podcast. But sometimes the important place to begin is at the beginning, at the very beginning. So rather than starting in Jersey City, New Jersey, rather <laughs> than starting in St. Louis, Missouri, where I record from today, let's go back a little bit farther. Let's go back to the childhood that, that formed you into the young man that you became over time. I've heard you in the past talk about that you were uh, from a small town in India. And then you said, it's a small town of 2 million people. So, <laughs> <laughs> so things in India and the States are a little bit different. Talk about growing up in India. It's all relative, but growing up, it still used to be a small town. I mean, when I say a small town, you could drive from one side to the other on your bike in 20 minutes. You know, that's a small town very densely populated a bit very fortunate to have a very um, safe loving and and inspiring childhood i mean I, I had great influence from my parents a small family but lots of love and, and affection all around so like i was in a little cocoon uh, you know growing up until one day i decided i had to do something with my life and i immigrated to this country and and that's when i i realized the need to grow up because all that, that safety net I had around me sort of went sideways. And here I found in a completely new, new country, new culture, new language, all by myself. Your dad was a profound influence in your life. It's one thing to see a father who well, traveled to halfway around the world and, and got a degree from a phenomenal global university and came back and served his family well. As his son, though, what was it about the manner in which he treated you and, and taught you and, and trained you up and loved you that you dreamed one day of being half the man that he was? Until I lost him, I never realized that he and I shared the relationship of a father and son. It, to me, he was just a really, really good friend. Mm -hmm. And that's how he treated me. That's how he raised me. I still remember how he would just abruptly break into a, a like a boxing match with me or or you throw a punch at me you know just he just kept it very light he never made it very he was a very happy person he was just full of life that, that was something so it was so refreshing and it was so nice to be and grow up in that energy around him uh, because there was a balance of both there was that razor sharp intellect on one side yes. and on the other side there was no ego there was just so much lightness and happiness and that combination was very refreshing. I, you usually see one or the other kind of overpower, but he had this beautiful balance of both. And that inspired me. That made me want to be like him. You, you mentioned that this bubble, this beautiful community that you grew up in in India, you eventually graduate university. And, and one of your very first jobs is in a city called New York City which very few people would refer to as a very safe, beautiful, you know, bubble. It's, it's, a, it's a dramatic shift from the childhood that you experienced. What was it like when you first started moving around New York City for you? I was wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, John. I was <laughs> like, you know, it was something I'd never uh, imagined. I mean, only seen it in movies and, yes. and you know, read, it about, read about the grandeur of that city in the books. But... When I came here, I was like, wow, this is the this is the life I'd always imagined to be. I mean, it was like the ultimate doorway to this American dream. Um, and, you know, I always wanted to, once I started studying, um, I realized that I did not want to pursue computer science. I wanted to do, I want to be in finance. So I started shifting inch by inch in that direction. And as luck would have it, 
my first job ended up on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And in that alpha culture, I was, I, I found, I think what I was looking for, I was good with numbers. Um, I was good at what I was doing. And so it, it was like, I, I hit the ground running when I came to this, this city, I really took to it. I adored being in the city, the, the, the heights, the tall buildings, everything that I, I loved about it. You mentioned the American dream. And in America, we have one interpretation of what that might mean. When you grow up on the other side of the world, almost exactly on the other side of the world, and you have this vision of, of living out the American dream for you, what were you pursuing? What did the American dream look like? Having grown up in a, um, in, in a city with, with limited resources and, and having grown up in a family with, you know, there was a lot of resources that mattered. There was a lot of love, but you know, the material resources were very finite. So in my teenage mind, in my limited perception, that American dream was um, all about material success. Um, that you you make it big. It's a land of opportunities. You go there, you make it big on your own might, and it's a very meritocratic uh, society. And so if you have it in you, you'll get an opportunity to shine, which is not true for every place. You get to shine and you get the job of a lifetime coming out of school at Goldman Sachs. What was it that you were doing for Goldman Sachs? Well, I started as an analyst on a trading desk. So, you know, you, if you're familiar with this whole Wall Street culture, the, the first few years, you are a mule. Um, and, and, and that's what I was. But I wasn't complaining about it, John. I was, I was rising fast. Um, I was loving what I was doing. And what are your hours like back in the day? Oh, it was, I was there in perpetuity. There, there were no real hours from early in the morning till work got done, which is almost it never got done. So... I almost usually stayed back to like 8, 9, 10 p.m., come back, work weekends. Uh, but it was considered normal. I, I didn't, I had not seen anything else. Yes. And everybody around me was, was doing it. The people were super smart and they were still continuously raising the bar. So I thought this must be it. This is what Wall Street life is. And so I, I took to it like fish takes to water. Well, you, uh, you're in the middle of the tank and... Uh the entire world is about to change profoundly on September 11, 2001. Goldman Sachs had its offices in the World, world Trade Towers, and you find yourself on your way to office on 9-11. And we've been kind of just talking broadly about childhood and dreams and the American dream and, and work. And now here you are, part of history. So take us through this day at 9-11. What do, you, what do you remember about the morning? So our office was on the east side of the island, not right in World Trade Center, but I would have to pass through World Trade Center because I would take the subway to the transport hub in the World Trade Center. So luckily I was on a lower floor that day, on the second floor as I was coming out. And the first thing I remember was a loud noise, a very high decibel blast, which people mistook for an explosion, like a, as if a bomb had gone off. The intensity was, was so. Um, and so what I remember is that, that pandemonium, that people kind of dashing for, uh, in all different directions, not knowing what to do. Uh, nobody knew what was happening, but there was one consistent theme, which was fear. 
Um, it was the first time actually in this country I saw, I witnessed and experienced both uh, fear. I'd never seen fear. This was, this really felt like such a safe haven, such a safe place. And I felt fear for the first time. As luck would have it, I, I dashed out. Yeah, there was a security person who said, stay inside, it's unsafe outside. Uh, he was, he meant well. Um, but against that advice, I stepped out. As I was looking at what had just happened, trying to process, um, trying to figure out what would make people jump out of the windows in, in, in that moment. The another aircraft just comes in and just crashes into the South Tower right in front of my eyes. In that moment, I realized that this was not a not an accident. This is perhaps a very planned, deliberate action here. And and yeah, in, the, in that moment, I just stepped away. And as I was moving away, the, the buildings collapsed. The, the first tower, the North Tower, collapsed. As luck would have it, there was a commuter ferry that was just pulling out on the, on the East River. I just leapt on it. I just jumped on it. In that moment, it was the first time when the ferry pulled out and I missed that big dust cloud. I realized that I just survived. I had become a 9-11 survivor. Kushal, I'm a, a Midwestern guy who was at that moment 1,400 or so miles away from Manhattan and know exactly where I was when the second plane went into the building and when the first tower came down and where the second tower came down and how I felt and how gut-wrenching this was and remains more than 20 years later, it's still guttural. It's still the kind of moment that you, you changed an individual's life, but our collective global lives as well. You were in the footprint of it all. As you're living through this moment, now on the ferry, pushing back away from Manhattan, heading back over to New Jersey, not even sure what had happened or what's happening next. What are you thinking? It was a moment where I wasn't sure if this was real. I, I, it was like someone pinched me, wake me up. If I don't know if this is real or am I dreaming? Because after the buildings had collapsed, there was a there was a eerie stillness in the atmosphere. I really wasn't thinking much. I was just trying to process what had just happened. On the day that this happened, I was working not far from my mother and father's house. I used to be in construction. I left the place where I was working, drove out to see my mom and dad, check on them. And as I'm visiting with my mom, the first tower falls. And then after visiting 45 minutes longer or so, the second tower falls. And after hugging her and praying and just crying, it's, it's just the worst day. I left and uh, my car was on empty. So I went to a gas station and this, this gas station that's now out of business near my mom and dad's, it always had a gentleman from India working there. And I walked in and this man who had always been so sweet to me and always made eye contact. Like, yeah, I've never told anybody this story. But he did not look at me and he did not raise his eyes really above the counter. And he took the card and handed it back. And it was all very business and all very sad. And I understood that day, like what he was experiencing, like the, the pain was not only collectively ours, but individually his because he was an immigrant. And already there were some animated individuals in the marketplace that were blaming this on others from outside the country. And so in your book, you wrote about what this was like for you. And when I read this, it just made me cry, actually thinking about not only that the man working at the gas station, but you on a Greyhound bus and the looks that you were receiving and some of the whispers that you were overhearing. So would you just share with us what, what was it like for you to board that bus? Where were you going? And then what did you experience? So I thought I just wanted to go away from this madness because the 
really the real reason I wanted to go away from it was that the stench in the air was just too strong for me to bear. And so I thought I just wanted to get out of this God forsaken place. And in that moment, that was the only thing on my mind. And unfortunately, all modes of transport were, were shut down. And I didn't have a car. So I, I, I got on a Greyhound bus, uh, bought a one-way ticket and, and, and got on a bus. And the first time I got on the bus, um, I really got some, some looks from the people on the bus. It's, I've never experienced any kind of profiling ever, John, ever before in this country or ever anywhere else. But I've read about it. And, you know, sometimes when you've not really experienced it, you can't really appreciate the depth of it. Like, what are these people really talking about? You can't, you empathize with it, but you can't really go full length because you've not experienced it. But this is the first time I experienced something like that. And it turned out to be a, a very silent, long 10-hour bus ride where people would look at me and, and painted me with the same broad brush and thinking I'm one of them. My skin color, my features perhaps resemble the people who they kept flashing on TV every, every five minutes. I wanted to say I have nothing in common with them. I have more in common with you than, than with those guys, but I, I kept quiet. All this emotion and energy and tragedy and angst and anger and guilt maybe, and just pain and pain. And in the midst of this long bus ride, your phone keeps vibrating. And eventually you answer it and uh, I'll let you take it forward from there. But who was who calling you while you're on this bus line heading away from New York? Wow, John, you really read my book through a Did fine. I've done my research. I'm ready to roll. <laughs> it was, it was uh, my boss who called, uh, a very kind gentleman. But he called and he was wondering um, when I would be back at work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if, if this wasn't 20 years later, I would not be laughing at that. It, uh, I've had a little bit of time to work through some of my own emotions and process life. But the idea on that day to call an employee uh, about work, it, it, it seems impossible. You know, to his credit, perhaps he was being called wherever he was from his boss, I'm sure. Um, so this is that culture that got passed down, right? But it was a real big opportunity to be around on Wall Street. I, I still remember, you know, a, a tremendous amount of volatility in the financial markets that upheaval had kept the markets. Uh, the stock exchange was closed down for three days. And when it opened, the, the spirits would be gunning towards um, making some, some real cash. Yes. And, and so there was an opportunity that, that couldn't be, you know, of course, there was so much stakes were so high and there were some people who were invested in the other directions who would immediately want to take their money out and, and shove it under the mattress. So you had to be there. You had a fiduciary custodial responsibility towards these people. So it was a, it was a mixed feeling. On one side, you were responsible and on the other side, you were like, this is so capitalistic. I mean, I, I don't want to be part of this madness. I, I just want to be. That's interesting. So you, you just want to be, and yet you, you do return to work. The obligation to serve and to be part of this system is a strong draw. And yet the energy you felt for your work begins to fade. Yes. Just talk about that because we're about to go, you and I and our listeners on a journey where you just keep pursuing the next buzz and none of it seems to satisfy. It started fading out because I, I was feeling an interesting split in, in my 
in my mind at that time. There was part of me that was really enthusiastic. Uh, there was thankful for the new lease on life and said, okay, now I have to go after whatever I'd come to achieve here with all the more energy. But then there was another part of it, which was questioning, was this really meaningful? Was this, is this really, you know, what I'm here to do? What, what if something like this were to ever happen again? This is all so fragile. It felt pointless. But I didn't know any better. Looking back, if I had the wisdom that I have right now, I would have responded to it in a much different way. You wrote beautifully about boredom and that it was almost like a, not as much a movement toward meaning as a pushback against boredom. And so you worked as hard as you'd ever worked and you traveled all around the world to some really exotic places and you raced fast cars and you started marathon running and on and on. You learned how to fly an airplane of all things. The <laughs> yeah. thing that probably scared you the most you learn not only to be a passenger in the back of one of these things, but to learn how to actually pilot the thing forward safely and effectively. And yet in all of it, none of it ultimately satisfied. I'm going to read to you. you. You may not be familiar with this, but Ecclesiastes is from a, it's a book in sacred scripture from, in my worldview, the Christian worldview, uh, the Old Testament. And it's uh, the, the first line of this book. It's just beautiful. Listen to this. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. And then this great leader goes on to talk about all the things that he went and tried to do in his life, seeking, seeking things, pursuing things, climbing ladders, achieving success. And found success ultimately in none of it, real meaning in none of it, real peace in none of it. And as I was reading some of the early chapters of your book, I, I, you know, King Solomon came to mind as this person who pursued and pursued and pursued and ultimately mm, none of it worked. So for you, part of this pursuit begins to shift when you find an invitation to go to a guru. Would you just talk about who invited you to it and, and what this guru was going to be teaching and training on? My wife, who was used to work uh, as a trader at, uh, at Goldman Sachs, her colleague, she invited us to go to, to meet this guru. His name is Gurudev Shishi Ravi Shankar. And I was averse, John, to, to gurus. My conditioning from childhood, from the gurus I'd seen growing up or met as a grown-up, I just didn't think it was for me. I, I just thought it was something so out there. And... But just to support a friend, I got an event ticket. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, this universe has a strange way of, of shepherding you through this, through the events. And little did I know that I was being guided in that direction through an invisible hand of creation. But that day was perhaps a beginning of a, of a long journey for me. It was, a, it was a page turner in otherwise a very ordinary kind of repetitive monotonous book if you if you will i met gurudev i met shishi ravi shankar for the first time and he appeared very different he appeared very unlike my understanding of my preconceived notions of of what gurus are and and, and what they do there was a, a friendly vibe about it and he, he felt very approachable but but i was not ready to 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 subscribe yet i was very guarded very skeptic yet and the first time I meditated in that afternoon with him, 
it was a, I very distinctly remember how I felt in my state of mind, how, how refreshing, how rejuvenating it was, but more so it was a state of mind without thoughts, John. It was for the period of 20, 20 some minutes, I felt that nothingness. It's very calming, very nice, but what gives, you know, that, that, that Wall Street trained mind doesn't want to take anything on its face value, right? So right. I was questioning and questioning. So I started reading about it. I reading about, you know, Gurudev. I doing, started doing a lot of research on what is he, where is he from? What is his agenda? Why does he keep traveling? All those, all those questions that a skeptic would have. There was a technique that, that he, he taught, uh, sky breath meditation, which this friend of mine invited me to. Um, and I started doing some research about it. And when I did that research, I realized that this was not just a placebo effect or just not something, uh, a feel-good woo-woo thing. It's, this was a scientifically validated practice, uh, technique, something that I, you know, as we were, you were beautifully recapping my entire life, there's one point in that journey when I was trying to look for this and look for that. I also looked at meditation and, and mindfulness and all those things, but it just became a very dry intellectual exercise for me. There was no experience. But for the first time here, there was an experience. I got an experience of, of that stillness. Mm. So I thought maybe there is something in here for me. So guarded and averse as I was, I started tiptoeing in that direction. Your grandmother from what you shared in the past was highly spiritual and, and drew you in a little bit. And you mentioned some previous experiences with meditation and mindfulness and, and faith that weren't engaging for you. You know, there's an old expression, the teacher appears when the student is ready. Do, yeah. do you think the profound pain of September 11th and the challenge that it was in your life to make sense of that loss and then the meaning going forward prepared the soil so that it would, you know, when this teacher Srivri shows up that you're actually ready to sit back and listen and open up your heart and mind to, to grow and expand. Perhaps that's a refreshing way to look at it, but I don't think I was ready then, at least in my mind, I wasn't ready because he had appeared, but I was still questioning. I was still doubting. And I, I could say I, I was inclined, but I was still not ready, ready. My left brain always wanted that scientific uh, underpinning before I could accept it, before I could embrace it. For our viewers and our listeners right now who are wondering what sky breathing is actually all about, what it, what it means, would you just broadly describe what sky breathing actually is? It's a very experiential technique, but I, I will try my best. So it just uses uh, rhythms, the natural rhythms in our own breath to harmonize all the different functions in our system. So we have these functions of perception, functions of cognition, um, the intellect, of course, the physical functions, um, the memory, all these different functions make up of who we really are. And when these functions um, go out of balance, then these functions are not aligned, that creates stress in our nervous system. So what this sky breath does is just using the rhythms of our breath, it introduces coherence across all these different layers of who we are. And when that happens, automatically you feel natural, you feel calm, you feel in the moment. See the big deal, John, people make about being in the present moment. 
right? Don't, don't think of past, don't think of future, be in the now. But how do you be in the now? How do you ask your mind to, to be, to, to turn off, to do anything? And perhaps that was the reason why I could not take to meditation when I tried before. Because I was trying everything as wanting to go somewhere, wanting to achieve something, even in meditation. Everything that I was trying to do in meditation was effort. Yes. Whether it was resisting my thoughts or focusing on a sound or a light or an object or watching my breath, everything was effort. And effort is the frontal cortex activity, which does not let you transcend the mind, which does not let you transcend your own thoughts. And so everything till then was a very superficial at the level of the surface activity or an experience. But what the sky breath allowed was using the breath, it let me pole vault past all these different functions, all these different layers, the layers of, you know, thoughts, the layers of intellect, the layers of memory, that of ego or that identity, all the way to that innermost core of our being, the self, the mm-hmm. consciousness, the, whatever you want to call it. There's so many terms people use to know it as. But that's something that you and I have in common, despite of all the different you know, optical differences that we have, that what connects me to you, that real self, the sky breath, just through this breathing, rhythmic breathing, very simple. It takes you there. So to me, it was a very effortless way to meditate. I didn't have to do any effort. I didn't have to think of anything. In fact, I could think of whatever I wanted to. That was so refreshing that it allowed me to think. And, and yet at the end of it, poof, it dropped me into a space of nothingness. So Kushal, if I, if I don't ask the question, I think my listeners will will get mad at me. So here it comes. And I also believe I already know what the answer from you is going to be because you've been on the decade journey. You can't possibly deliver us the answer in, you know, in a 30 second elevator pitch. But how do we even begin utilizing some of the benefits of sky breathing? What, what is a strategy or a habit or a technique or John, I'm going to take you through a 30 second exercise right now. And here's what I want you to think about. So what is one thing we can be begin doing right now to at least step farther down that pathway? So just being aware of our own breath. Perhaps it's a lot more evident now, but when I was learning this or when I was getting introduced to this whole new world or new dimension, I wasn't so clear that the mind and breath are so intricately connected, related. You know, it's like how whatever we feel in our system, let's say if you're angry, your breath is going to change. You're going to breathe short and and shallow. Versus if somebody is in pain, there's a deeper exhalation. So usually the mind leads and the breath follows. But the sky breath works on the principle that's exactly the other way around. If you learn to modulate your breath in a certain way, your mind follows. So if you want to be in control of your own mind, it's something that sounds so out there, beginning by being aware of our own breath. Even if it's for five minutes a day, you can, you can just sit and, and watch your breath. Like um, it's a very simple technique. You just, I call it the straw breath where you breathe in and out, you breathe through your nose and breathe out through your mouth 
as if you were holding an imaginary straw between your lips. And then if you just practice that for a few minutes, you can see how a profound shift in the state of mind occurs. Just three to four minutes, not even asking more. Many of our listeners might be thinking that if we go down this path, we also resign the fact that the ambitions we desire, whether it's being a better spouse, achieving more professionally, being more charitable, whatever the, the external things that we are doing are, that we have to give them all up. And I hear in what you've shared on various podcasts and what you've written in your book, that that's not necessarily true, that these are not necessarily mutually exclusive, that you can it can be a yes and deal. So would you talk about how ambition is not the enemy of sky breath? So if you are the one, if you are the listener with this thought in your mind, welcome to my world from 20 years back. <laughs> the predominant reason, other than the fact that I could have no experience, I resisted meditation was because I thought it would take the edge off that I thought it was a pursuit for retirement. Like when you're done with all your worldly desires and ambitions and wherever you ought to be, when you're done with everything, that's when you go and, and, and medit- learn to meditate. I really thought it was, it was, a, it was something you, to, to get there, to master that, you have to become a recluse. You have to go in a cave and meditate. I was so wrong, John. I was absolutely wrong. In fact, it's exactly the other way. It gives you the ability, the clarity, the focus, the energy to go out in the world and play even harder. You know, it's, and this is something I can tell, you know, connect the dots looking backwards. I can tell with the benefit of hindsight that I I wish I knew this when I was resisting this whole thing, um, that the, the reason you meditate is so that you are so much more productive, you're so much more energetic, your intuition improves. And you take all these tools to do what? To to become a better version of yourself? Many, including the one asking the question, are wondering when in the world am I supposed to find time in the midst of the chaos and craziness and busyness of life right now to meditate, whether it be for five minutes or 60 minutes or longer. So for those wondering, how do we find time in the business and chaos of our days to do this? What's your recommendation? I don't think it should be a conscious effort to do it. You know, it's, it's something like you, no matter how busy you are, you find time to brush your teeth because you know the benefits. And if you don't, you know how you and world is going to react to it. So it's like that. I just say, don't think that you're going to be committing. It's a lifelong commitment for 20 minutes a day, whatever, for for you to make. Just try it for a week. You owe it to yourself. Try it for a week, 10 days. And if you see the benefits, you're going to want it. You know, when you see that, okay, this is giving me more than any other thing that that you were pursuing, you can, and you, you call that 20 minutes out and, and give it to this because it, this naturally is giving it back to you and much more. I love that, man. Just the idea of, hey, you know what, John? Find the five minutes, set it aside, do it for a week. And if you find progress, if you find peace, you won't need me over your shoulder yelling at you. You will desire it yourself. And you shared a whole lot of beautiful quotes, uh, some of them your own, some of them for some of your spiritual teachers, others from um, history. 
I'm going to go through a couple of these quotes that I wrote down. And if, if you will, for us today, unpack what they mean for us. So to move forward in life, one must use the mind. To move inwards, however, one must drop the mind. This is the quote from, I believe, my, uh, my spiritual teacher, Gurudev Sri Sri Ravi Shankar. And, you know, if you think everything, wherever we are, um, at some level, our mind is responsible for delivering, delivering us there or not letting us go somewhere else. Because it's, our world is, is created in our own perception, is in our own mind. Right, whether someone likes me or not, whether something is good for me or not, is all in our own mind. So, a mind is something that keeps us in our outer realm, in our outer dimension of our life. Because everything we do in life, or I should say, ninety-nine percent of the things we do, is we are serving the outer dimension of our life. Whether it's our bank balance, it's our relationships, it's our home, um, it's even this physical body. It's all outer dimension. But the faculty that really gives us purpose, the faculty that really gives us contentment is a dimension beyond mind. Mm. So to get there, we need to move past the mind. That wanting to be inwards is wanting to go past the mind, that, that faculty that is that the realm of thoughts and emotions and judgments and feelings. We need to go past that. And breath work can help you get there. That's so deep, man. I mean, honestly, we could spend hours unpacking that answer and, uh, and then spend hours unpacking those answers. The journey, though, is worthwhile. And taking the first step toward understanding who we are and whose we are and why we're here and what matters most and how do we get clarity around that is indeed a worthy one. And so um, it ties, I believe, into the second quote. I'm borrowing this from your book and from one of your spiritual teachers. Effort is the key in the relative. Effortlessness is the key to the absolute. You know, again, going back to this ties beautifully to the first quote that you just read. Everything we do in life, we think it had, as someone who's deemed control free, we, we want it to be in control. We want to be in control of our lives. We want to be in control of our careers. We want to be in control of our relationship, everything. We want to be in the driving seat. And that is, again, something of very, very superficial activity. You know, something at something very outwardly. And effort can only take you so far. Because the level of, at, once you want to transcend the mind, you cannot control the mind with your mind, right? You, you, have, to, you have to drop that effort. It's like... Say you want, to, you want to get on to your destination somewhere, you're traveling, you jump onto the train. So you put an effort to get onto the train, but once you're on the train, you have to drop the effort, drop the bags and just sit and just, just be. Yeah. This, this life that we are so conditioned to live doesn't allow us to just be. We are we're constantly in that place. I want to get there, I want to be there, I want to do this, that. So somewhere, there's a beautiful balance between doing and being, right? So it's not like you don't want to do it. You don't, I'm not saying drop the effort, give it your hundred percent. But once you've given your all, there's, there's a space 
where you have to learn to drop it. And when you drop it, that's when you can actually witness the, the magic unfold. Mm. Well, that beautiful answer ties into the third and final quote that I'm going to draw out of your book. The book, by the way, I haven't mentioned it by name since the introduction is on a wing and a prayer. Even the meaning of the, the title that you shared is it's a beautiful uh, story behind the story. So the final quote that I want you to unpack for us today is this, you need not be afraid of losing control because you had none to lose. I love that quote. You need not be afraid of losing control because you had none to lose. Tell me what that means. Everything, the parameters around me were laid out in such a way that I could not have made but that choice that I made. So I believe in free will, which means we have to decide on something. We have to take some control. And ultimately, life is like a river. And you jump into it and you just start floating. And, and God, source, love is going to take you in a, in a direction that you would have never chosen for yourself anyway, but it's going to take you perfectly there. Absolutely. There, there's, a, there's a free will and destiny. Life is a beautiful combination of both. You know, I totally agree with you. But as, you know, my teacher once said something very funny. He said, you know, your, your height is your destiny, but your, your weight in some sense is your free will. You know, you, you can't grow beyond a certain height, but how much you weigh, you can control to some extent, right? So there in life is a beautiful balance of both free will and, and destiny. But there's this sense of control that we have that, oh, I want to be in control. To some extent, like, I feel there is, there's always the things around us orchestrate in a, in, a, in a way that we end up choosing that the way it's all kind of, of this time, it's all going in that direction, largely. So, and sometimes we have this affinity towards that, that sense of control that, oh, I mean, it's, we're not afraid to lose the control. This is afraid of losing that sense of control that we have. Right? Awesome. Thank you. And my friend, life is a mystery to be lived, not to be solved. It's another line from your book. When you wrote the book, though, on a wing and a prayer, what were you hoping readers might get from that book? I just wanted to share what I had experienced um, as a highly conditioned mind um, that I could, this was spirituality was never on my bucket list. It was not something I never thought I would be remotely inclined towards. Um, so I felt that um, if I could do it, if I could experience that, I want everyone on this planet to experience what I have tried. And if I could do it, anyone can. We are going so fast in this, uh, in this current of life. As we are zooming through, maybe take that few minutes out and just step back and, and, and really take stock of life. See what's happening just to, to connect with that deeper self, to get a little glimpse of who we really are. As you look back on, on the journey, what's the one thing you've learned? It's such a global journey and such a wild spiritual journey and one filled with so much grief and sadness and joy and peace. So as you look back, you know, 40 plus years, what's the one thing you've really learned along the way? Few things, but something very tangible is the power of breath. It's unimaginable what our breath is capable of doing or giving us. There are secrets to life in this breath something so out there, which we are never aware of it. It's so, we take it for granted. It's like 
we are only aware of our breath when when we are on a treadmill. It's we're never aware of we never pay attention to our own breath. That's one. Something that Gurudev says is is don't take life too seriously. You know, life is life is a game. Just enjoy. It's full of celebration. It's he said something beautiful. He says, look at this life as a transit lounge. You're here for a short period. You don't come and open your suitcases and start living in the in the lounge. It's just here as you're passing by. Just just have fun. Just take you know, just live life full of you know that that joy and gusto and and give back. Do something for others. He says that's a that's a mature joy, like the joy of a grandmother. Mm. They wants to share. They wants to give back. I realized my joy was the joy of a of a teenager wanting to possess, wanting to graduating from that infant joy to more mature joy. That is so strong, man. Moving from infant joy to the wisdom and the peace and the generosity and the and the joyfulness of a grandmother. <laughs> I will be seeking that throughout this week and beyond that little nugget on the end of it. You, you were talking earlier about um, don't take life so seriously. There was a book, the art of possibility. They give the analogy of a kingdom where uh, there are major challenges. And the, and as the king begins to erupt with anger, someone would walk in and, and whisper something in his ear. And then immediately the king would settle down and then something else would happen and he'd start getting tense again. And then someone would whisper something in his ear. And when it happened the third time, one of the dignitaries at the table said, what are they whispering into your ear? And he said, Oh, they're just, they're saying rule number six. And so then the dignitary says, well, what, what is rule number six? And the King says, don't take yourself so damn seriously. (laughs) Seriously. If we could, honestly live by that so much of this anger we have toward our spouse or toward our singleness or toward our government or one another would fade immediately so uh i read that years and years ago i don't remember the author but i do remember the wisdom of not trying to take myself or life so seriously you hit it on the head john but then a question one may ask is but how do you really do that right because that, again, not taking seriously becomes a concept in the mind, something that you want to aspire towards. And again, it becomes a mental exercise. Right. Well, I would recommend giving it a shot, giving it a try. The book is called On a Wing and a Prayer. Kashal Chalsky is the author. And Kashal, before we let you go back to your work, back to your life, back to your prayer and your meditation, we do have seven questions that tether all of our guests together. And okay. uh, they're just quick questions with quick answers, but hopefully deep meaning behind them. The first question is, Kushal, what is the most meaningful or impactful book you've ever read? Wow, that's a deep question. The Advan- Adventures of Don Quixote by wow. Cervantes. What? Tell me about that. Why is that the one? It gave me the strength and courage to do crazy things. It, as a kid, I read it and it created that sense of wonder, that yes. sense of adventure, that, that who cares what world thinks? I'm going to do what I think is, you know, it, it supports my life. I, I, just, just courage to follow the heart, uh, regardless of what people think. And yet be light, be not taking life too seriously. The, uh, part of the book took place in Spain. And I think you, you walk the same steps as the... Uh as a protagonist, isn't that right? 
That's right. I was so inspired and, and taken by, of course, it's a fictional character, Don Quixote, but um, I was so taken by the, by the, by the readings that I actually uh, visited the places where, uh, that are mentioned in the book. Pretty awesome. What, what's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little guy growing up in India that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? That, that, that being natural, that being free in any moment, all the time, every time. Hmm. Have you found as you go deeper towards surrendering and into the breath work and towards spirituality that you are becoming more free? Absolutely. It's actually a lot of unlearning has happened in that process. Yeah. It has taken me back. It has given me the glimpse of being back to uh, going back to that, uh, that, that moments of childhood for sure. Yeah. If, and that's, if, the most, that's the most rewarding part of it. What a gift. If your apartment, your home, your condominium caught fire and all living things around family, animals, and you have an opportunity to run back in and grab one item What's the one thing you come running, running back outside with safely? Maybe my six string. Michelle, <laughs> if you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone, living or deceased, who would you want to be seated next to? Gurudev Sri Sri Ravi Shankar. Perhaps he'll help me unpack a few more mysteries of consciousness. Awesome. What's the best advice you've ever received? That life is a game. Take, take life as a game. Tell me what that means to you. Because I think some people might take that out of context. And I want to make sure you're able to wrap it a little bit with meaning. Life is a game. What does that mean to you? That is lot, again, going back to the quote that you pulled earlier about being in control, being so entrenched with what meets the eye, being stuck in day to day, just eating, sleeping, doing our duties, um, pursuing careers. At somewhere we, we really lose who we really are. We lose touch with who we really are. But if you think about it, there is, at some level, there's no purpose. There's a lot of, there's a deep purpose to it. And, and again, there's no purpose to everything that we do. Like what, what is it that we, it's just, isn't it just like, we, we come, we do the best we can, and then we go. And it just feels, that just, doesn't that feel like a game? There is, there is when, you, when you're in the game, you're not attached to the outcome, then you start enjoying the journey. Mm. And, well, and you know, Solomon's struggle from Ecclesiastes, that sacred scripture I quoted. Coming back to full circle. But if, if you knew the end, the end result of the game, how the game is going to, how, how, this, how this match is going to end up, Perhaps the, the, you know, the home runs are all that won't make you so excited, right? Won't make so much joy, won't bring so much joy. So about, about enjoying the journey, just mm. like the game. What advice would you whisper into to your 20-year-old self? So if you could go back in time and whisper a little bit of wisdom into yourself at age 20, what would you say? Be open-minded. That, that might be something I whisper to our listeners and to the interviewer today, just to remain open-minded and wildly curious. Be open to possibilities. Life is full of possibilities. Just be open to it. Just never know what can inspire you in what moment. 
Kisha Olchowski, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Oh, life summed up into one sentence? He lived a very content and happy life. <laughs> the vice president from the asset desk of Goldman Sachs, who uh, is an author and a business owner, has driven fast cars and traveled the world and all the other things, was content, was free, and uh, spend a life teaching others how to do likewise. Kishal, I want to thank you for spending a little bit of your day with us today, showing us how we can do likewise. Thank you. Thank you for having me, John. It's been an absolute pleasure. It has been a joy. My friends, that is Kishal Chosky. He is the author of On a Wing and a Prayer. My name is John O'Leary, and today's your day. Live inspired. My friends, I'm always looking for one specific takeaway from these conversations. Yeah, we, we want to leave inspired. We want to leave encouraged. We want to leave fueled by hope. And we want to leave fueled with one next right step. So if you are like me and you're looking for that next right step right now, perfect. For me from this conversation, it's the idea around breath and the idea of finding time, practicing this for one week, not just one day, not two days. Try it for one week. Kashal recommended meditating, using sky breath, choosing some other form of creating space, whether that's reflecting or journaling or prayerfully considering your life, the gift that it is, and the power that you have in that life to do even greater, better things for those around you going forward. What, what an awesome suggestion. One week, taking time intentionally for yourself to reflect and pause on the things that matter most, controlling what you can, letting go of what you can't, in order that you may take the next right step forward. If after doing so, or while you're doing this, you're also looking for additional inspirational content to keep you motivated in the journey forward, and you liked what you heard from Kashal, I think you will love what you hear from one of my dear friends. Her name is Jean Celestine Lakin. She is a Rwanda genocide survivor her story is unmatched for what she endured. And as she shares it with us, you're going to hear it's also unmatched with the joy she carries into the day. For her, faith matters. For her, focus matters. For her, family matters. This is a woman who loves to celebrate life. And when you hear a story, you're going to be celebrating yours. So if you want to hear more about Jane's story of, of overcoming, check out episode 300 and 46 of the Live Inspired podcast, or you can always cruise over to the show notes, learn more about all of that at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. Well, our friends at Keeley Companies are proud to welcome Keeley Restoration Services to their family. This team of experts prides themselves on bringing life back to buildings and structures, maintaining their lifespan, and reducing the impact on the environment in the process. Learn more about Keeley Restoration Services by visiting them right now online at keeleycompanies.com.